And turn with me, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 28. I'm going to be looking at verses 7 to 16, but I'm actually going to start in verse 1 again and recover some territory we talked about before. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune came to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius laid sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when they were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I may have mentioned before that I have a slight obsession with the Lord of the Rings, um, and it's been kind of restoked because we've been watching it with the four older kids, the, the movies anyway, and uh, uh, that meant I had to break my rule because not all of them actually finished reading it, which was supposed to be the rule, but any which way, you know, I'm softening in my old age, I guess, or something. Um, but for those who did read, which is about half of them, I guess, uh, there's always one notable character who's missing when you watch the movies and you notice it right away in Fellowship of the Ring. You're missing Tom Bombadil. Now, some of you have read these books, I assume, uh, but the reason they leave him out of the movies is because he's weird. And um, he shows the hobbits great hospitality early in that book, uh, but while everyone is obsessed with this ring of power, I mean, the series is about this ring, I don't know if you've picked up on that much, um, uh, the, the ring of power, the entire focus of the story, it has the power to corrupt and destroy anybody who touches it, uses it, anything. And they go and visit Tom, and Tom can just take it on and off, thinks nothing of it, doesn't make him disappear. Uh, it has no allure for him. He actually kind of laughs at it and just tosses it back to Frodo, like nonchalant, like he doesn't care. And for decades, Tolkien fans have debated who Tom Bombadil is supposed to be, because there's certain, you know, 
uh, elements of uh, allegory and things going on here, right? And, and he just doesn't make sense. Is he like an angel character? Is he supposed to be like a god or a Christ-like figure? Is he Melchizedek? I've heard that argument too. And since no one can figure it out, filmmakers universally avoid him. He's the ultimate non sequitur in the story because he doesn't worship or fear what everyone else in the room does. No one can figure him out. And that's kind of where we left Paul last week. Uh, today, at long last, we, we will see that Paul finally gets safely to Rome. And like most journeys, the adventures of getting there in many ways make the better part of the story, right? It's been a wild ride by sea. Uh, the landing was not a particularly soft one, I wouldn't say. They were literally what the tide brought in, right? And while the natives have shown them unusual kindness, they've rolled out the red carpet, the local wildlife was not so kind. Uh, we left off last week after a strange miracle wherein Paul survived the toxic bite of a cat. I mean a snake. And... I call it a strange miracle, largely because it seems likely that Paul didn't realize it was one. Uh, He's kind of like an unwitting miracle worker in this case. Only the locals are aware of how toxic this thing is, and yet Paul, like, shakes the viper off of his hand without a thought, nonchalantly into the fire. It's a very Tom Bombadil kind of move. And he sits down like nothing happened. And, And meanwhile, the locals agree among themselves, Paul is no longer at criminal status, now he's a god. You know, like the biggest, like, turnaround of all time. So we stopped just as Paul had been declared a god, and and once again, Paul did nothing to correct this idea, this blasphemous idea, and it's because he doesn't speak Phoenician. And so the Maltese people, they keep spewing heresies about him, you know, and he doesn't realize it. And when you consider what happened to Paul when he was in Lystra, maybe this is for the best. Uh, That didn't end well for him when he tried to stop them, because superstitious people like their superstitions. And they don't like to be corrected, especially not by the guy that they're superstitious about, right? People don't like when their idols correct them. That's why sports fans hate players who are critical of their own fan base. That's why a lot of players get chased out of Philadelphia, for instance. But anyway, Paul had gained this new status. He is the serpent slayer. He's become an instant legend on the island, the man who survived the bite of justice, He must be a god. It's the only explanation. And since the Greek pantheon is an endless list of gods and heroes and goddesses, the question on their minds would have to be, well, which god is he? And that's a head-scratcher because Tom Bombadil hadn't been invented yet, and there is no Greek god of snakes per se. Mary Ruth pointed out last week to me that that the incident reminded her, and and, and I agreed, of the story in the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 21, the the people of Israel were grumbling against God, and so he sent fiery serpents into the camp to kill people for their hardness of heart. And when they beg for mercy, God has Moses wrap a a bronze snake on a pole, and uh, when anyone is bit, if they look at the serpent, they will live. It's a very short little story just kind of gets dropped in there. It's only five verses long. But it comes up again later because the bronze serpent was kept, and it becomes a superstitious object of worship and devotion in Israel. And so under King Hezekiah, who was trying to reform Israel's worship, he actually destroyed this ancient, priceless uh, uh, bit of uh, history here, this bronze serpent of Moses, because it had become an idol that they were actually burning incense to. 
So Hezekiah was an iconoclast long before the Puritans made it cool. Um, but he called the bronze serpent Nuhushtan, which basically translates as hunk of brass, meaning it's just a lump of metal. It's meaningless uh, in and of itself because the Israelites had made this classic mistake of worshiping the gift instead of the one who had given it, uh, the symbol instead of the power that was behind it. Now, along with that story, we have some Greek mythological overlap with the story as well because the Greek god Asclepius was generally considered the Greek god of healing. And the stories about Asclepius, like many of the Greek gods and heroes, vary depending on which region you lived in, and that's what happens when your gods are only based in folklore. The lore depends on the folks that you're hanging with. So interestingly, the symbol of Asclepius is two snakes on a staff, which he carried around, and that's the symbol that you typically see on ambulances and on EMS badges even today. Uh, one story claims Asclepius was told the secrets of healing by a snake who licked his ear clean and then whispered the secrets of medicine to him. Okay. Uh, another claims he accidentally killed a snake by you know just kind of ramming his pole on the ground and didn't see one was there and kind of crushed it. And then another snake comes and he's got like a, a poultice in his mouth and he puts it on the head of the other snake and that snake comes back to life and that that's how he learned the medicinal value of plants. All right. So these stories claim Asclepius as an incredible healer, and on one occasion it is claimed that Asclepius brought a dead man to life. Now, ultimately, according to the Greek mythology, Asclepius angered Hades, the god of the dead, because he was stealing his subjects by healing people who were on the brink of coming to him. And so as a favor to Hades, Zeus kills Asclepius, and causes a huge feud among the gods since Asclepius was Apollo's son. And then later, to make up for it, Zeus makes him into a, a constellation, Ophiuchus, the serpent holder. I used to know my constellations pretty well. I've heard of this one. I'm not sure I've ever seen it. Some of them you have to get up early for, and I'm just not that kind of person. But this all justified a, a cult of Asclepius throughout the Greek-speaking world. And in the Asclepian temples, they would actually often fill it, when they, when they would consecrate it, they would fill it with non-venomous snakes that they named after him, and they would kind of slither around to represent this mythological character. Now, having said all this, I wonder if these Maltese natives may have jumped to the conclusion that Paul could be Asclepius himself. And the next event maybe even further confirmed their suspicions says, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed." So what's happening here? It, it, it seems like there was sort of a like, you know, take me to your leader kind of moment here, right? They, they come to find out from the natives that somewhere nearby lives the big shot on the island, a guy named Publius. And so after everyone's warmed up by the fire, they take these 276 guests to see him. And at this point, seeing as they consider Paul a god, they probably introduce him first which is a little bit of a change of protocol. And, and once again, Paul has become the de facto leader of this expedition. He outranks the captain because they're not on a ship anymore, right? And, and Julius 
While he's the highest-ranking military officer in the group, he didn't survive a snake bite like Paul did. So Paul is the guy everyone's relying on. He's the big shot now. And they get to Publius's house, and he happily takes them in, and they stay there for three days, he says. It was Ben Franklin that said that uh, fish and company start to stink in three days, so this is the least and maybe the most you could expect of Publius. Um, but it's not such a small thing after all. You know, like at first I kind of breeze through this, and then you consider, like, wait a minute, Paul just showed up with 275 of his best friends. That's not a small undertaking to feed them for three days. Uh, one unexpected guest is one thing. These are men with appetites too, right? They haven't had a steady meal in weeks. So uh, I'm assuming this set Publius back a few. In any event, uh, his hospitality is rewarded because we're told that his father, who was sick with fever and dysentery, Paul went in and healed him. And once word gets out to the rest of the island, people grab all their sick family, you know, and, and they get in line to see Paul and get healed. Now, now verse 11, which we didn't get to just yet, uh, indicates that they spent the whole winter, three months, on Malta. So this probably didn't happen overnight, necessarily. I'm imagining Paul was healing people over several days, if not weeks. But if nothing else, this indicates that the Maltese people, they believe in Paul. And I say this with the caveat that they don't know who he is. I think it's very possible that they suspect he might be Asclepius, descended from Mount Olympus or from the stars or wherever he was supposed to be at that point. And I doubt that they were aware of the story of Moses and the fiery serpents, uh, but it's inarguable that Paul wields some sort of power that it seems like average men do not. Something is different about this guy. Now, Part of what is happening is at Publius's house is similar to something that we saw on the boat. I, I think ever since the incident with the viper, the locals know that Paul has power, right? What they don't know is what this has to do with them. How do they get an, a, a share in it? It was a similar question on the boat. It was clear that Paul was special and that this trip somehow revolved around him. What the sailors did not know at first was how to share in the power that Paul has and how can we take refuge in the power that resides and protects in Paul. And I think the people of Malta had a similar question. This guy, Paul, has power, obviously, but how can that benefit us? And when he heals Publius's father, then it becomes clear that whatever power resides in him not only has the ability to protect him, but also to bless others. And so they race to bring, you know, granddad, crippled children, Aunt Susie, whatever, and Paul gladly heals all of them, much like Jesus had done in his day. But I don't want to lose sight of the first healing, the only one that's described in detail. Publius's dad, he's not dealing with just like old age or a bad heart or something you can't see, like a lame leg or something. He has dysentery. That's a terrible disease. Uh, some of you haven't thought about dysentery since you last played Oregon Trail. Uh, but dysentery is... Basically, it's, it, it's chronic bloody diarrhea. It's usually accompanied, obviously, by dehydration uh, and then eventually anemia through blood loss. And Luke also points out that this guy was running a fever, which sort of indicates that things have advanced for a, for a time here. And furthermore, dysentery can spread, so this is also a risky visit. Now, there's absolutely no chance that this could be a misdiagnosis or a non-miracle. Because we have Luke the doctor to thank for that. He, he loves medical details, just as the locals know how deadly the snake was. Luke, our resident physician, would know exactly what Publius's dad was suffering from. 
And that brings in yet another interesting point. Luke is the only doctor present that we know of, and he might be the first doctor to give an official diagnosis of this illness at all. It's possible that there are no other doctors on Malta. It's, it's kind of a poor island. It's a backwater country, right? So Luke comes in and says, boy, that sure looks like dysentery and fever setting, and this guy's not going to last much longer. Now, Asclepius was supposedly a physician, not really a miracle worker, more so a, a great physician. So Luke is the only doctor in the room, but who heals Publius's dad? Not the doctor, the snakebite guy. Paul does it. But the power that resides in Paul is not medicinal. He doesn't use herbs or poultices like Asclepius would do, nor does he use the symbol of the snake. He burned that to ash last night, if you'll recall. What does he do? He touches him. He prays and then he touches him. He walks into a dirty room that smells like sickness and lays his hands on the withering, wasting body of Publius's father. And much like Jesus, his very touch makes the unclean clean and the sick healthy. The cure is not in the medicine. It's in a higher power that resides in him. Now, that healing is amazing in its own right, but it also messes with the imagery that the natives would expect. And this is where the similarities with Asclepius start to kind of vanish the more you look at it. See, for the Greeks, snakes were sacred symbols of wisdom and healing and even of resurrection. And so doctors adopted the non-venomous snake as their symbol even to this day, right? But the echidna, the viper, that bit Paul was a symbol of death and justice. Yet Paul comes in, kills the viper, and heals people not with medicine and not through using non-venomous snakes or something, but with a touch of the same hand that the viper bit. Illness can't touch him any more than justice can. The power in him just sort of pours out of his fingertips. Something is different about this guy. And moreover, I think we can safely assume that Paul eventually made clear to the locals here that he was not, in fact, Asclepius. Publius is a Roman name, and several Roman documents actually mention him. When Luke calls him the chief man of the island, that's actually probably a title. In other words, he's probably a Roman official. He's essentially the governor of the island. He's the Roman representative there. It's like Publius's island, kind of like Gilligan's island, only Publius was actually respected. But if Publius is a Roman official, then the assumption is that they speak Greek and Latin in his house, which means that there's no longer a language barrier, not there. Paul can make clear that he is not some philandering Greek hero or god, right? He, he can make clear that he represents Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died and got up again, not through the power of a snake or herbal medicines. Jesus was the only man who ever died and got up again on his own power because he was the only man that death ever claimed that had no right to him. That's whose power resides in Paul. And that's how he could touch the sick and the unclean and even vipers and walk away unscathed. This is not the kind of gods they're used to hearing about in Malta. And notice what Luke says in verse 10. Not that they honored Paul greatly, but that they honored us greatly. So once again, these 275 travelers are honored because they're under Paul's protection. 
These men who he's been praying for, for months at this point, they have everything they need because of Paul and his God. They share the honor just by being with him, and his faithfulness becomes a blessing to everyone around him. Paul is leading this crew. Now, the next handful of verses goes back into travelogue mode, and we've had some parts like this. I'll reread them. It says, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. So again, geography nerds can rejoice at this point, right? I, I was not initially sure how to apply this part of the passage. It, it honestly seemed like kind of straightforward, right? Winter passed. There happens to be a ship heading their way. The grateful Maltese natives load them up with supplies, and they head out to Rome. And Luke just briefly kind of points out all the pit stops they made. Syracuse and Sicily, Regium, that's the tip of the boot in Calabria, up to Puteoli, which is a port city near modern-day Naples. Basically, they hit up every major hotbed of organized crime that I know of in South Italy. And coincidentally, my ancestral lands. Uh, my grandmother was from Calabria, which is to this day noted for its kidnappings. And uh, my grandfather's family was from the foothills outside of Naples. So my, my brother tried to get me to watch a TV show that takes place. It's a crime thing in, in Naples, and it's called Gomorrah, and it's apparently a quite fitting title for the show. So my land, home of criminals and host of saints. Anyway, Luke says they made brief stops in all these places, and maybe this was before they earned their reputation as unsavory dens of iniquity, but Luke says that they even found some Christian brothers when they got to Puteoli, and he says that the church there invited them to stay for a week. Now this is probably not the entire 276-man crew at this point, but at the very least, the prisoners and soldiers who are on their way to the capital would be in this group, and the church welcomes everybody with open arms. So there's definitely a theme in this whole passage of hospitality, and we've seen it repeatedly in Acts. Hospitality should be a strength of the church. Not that we can do a Super Sunday every week, but it's a good idea to have them, right? And I can't help but think that Julius and the soldiers and the prisoners, too, had to be impressed by this outpouring of generosity from complete strangers. All they have in common with these people is that Paul serves the same God that they do, because we don't even know if Paul knows these people, necessarily. But they all know Jesus, so they treat the soldiers, who are Paul's friends, as honored guests. And they finally arrive in Rome, apparently on foot. And once again, Paul and his friends get a royal welcome from the church there. Luke says they came from all over the region just to encourage him, even as far as three taverns, which is one of the greatest town names in all of Scripture. It's the essentials of any community. Three different places to buy a beer. That's great. What more do you need? In any event, we're told that Paul thanked God and was encouraged by this outpouring of love. And reading between the lines, it sounds like Paul maybe needed it. Uh, he's been eager to get to Rome. That doesn't mean he's not nervous about it as well. Uh, he doesn't really know what's going to happen next. But the church is there to encourage him, which is what God has designed us to do. Even apostles need encouragement. So 
I think the same applies to pastors, elders, deacons, and all the rest of us, right? So there's plenty of takeaways here. That, 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 that Jesus, not Asclepius or Luke or Paul, is the great physician. That his touch heals people. The importance of hospitality. The, the people of Malta had modeled hospitality toward Paul and his fellow survivors. Publius also showed extraordinary hospitality. And both Publius and the people of Malta are blessed for that kindness. The church in Italy showed hospitality too, and that modeled the gospel for the Roman soldiers. There's also the faithfulness of Jesus in keeping his promises, right? Because here Paul is, at the end of this, safely in Rome, just as Jesus had promised. And he's not even in a prison. He's in a private home, surrounded by his believing friends, probably including the soldier at this point. But there's something else that ties this passage together, and it begins with a mysterious comment that Luke makes in verse 11. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. No commentators I've read have much to say about this. What caught my eye is how Luke describes the ship that finally got them to Rome. He, he mentions, yes, it's an Alexandrian ship, which is, was true of the one that just got destroyed, Uh, He mentions that it had spent the winter in Malta. Okay, that means Paul and company have had probably three months to get to know the captain and crew. That's all kind of innocuous information. But Luke also mentions this silly little detail. And little details bother me. I'm like Columbo in that way. He mentions that the ship had the twin gods as a figurehead. So carved into the prow. Now that's a reference to Castor and Pollux, the twin gods. In Greek, the Dioscori. Now, again, if you know your stars, if you like that kind of thing, Castor and Pollux are the brightest stars in the constellation Gemini. That's their Latin name. And if you know your Cold War space race history, you know that before the Apollo moon missions came a series of two-man missions that NASA sent up called the Gemini Program. Reference to the same gods. But who were Castor and Pollux, supposedly? Well, Greek mythology considered Castor and Pollux to be great horsemen. Uh, In the art world, they are generally portrayed as standing next to or being seated on horses, but more relevant to our passage, they were also, for whatever reason, considered the patron god of sailors. Patron gods. It was said that they appeared in the form of St. Elmo's fire, which is not just the most 80s-tastic movie of all time, uh, or its accompanying theme song that you've heard on the radio. Uh, it's, it's also those things. But it's also a strange phenomenon that shows up on airplanes and ships when the weather is just so. It's actually a, a plasma. It looks like lightning spreading across glass, or it can appear as a sort of purplish glow that shows up on the edges of the boat. Uh, it shows up in Moby Dick, foreshadowing disaster. But for the Greeks, St. Elmo's fire was a sign of good fortune. It showed that Castor and Pollux were were looking out for you, as it were. Now, here's my question. Why on earth does Luke point this out here? Why would Paul even board such a boat? Is it just a meaningless detail? I don't think so. I don't think Luke's in the habit of dumping useless words into a passage. And we're good Presbyterians. We believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, even if we don't remember what it means. (laughs) But seriously, we believe every word is inspired. God put them here for a purpose. So why does Luke feel like he needs to mention this? Why does the Holy Spirit 
provide this detail. We've been with Paul on many boats at this point, right? And this is the first time such a detail gets mentioned. Luke mentioned some stuff about the previous boat, the one that sank, but none of it was specific or unique about that boat. He mentioned cargo. Uh, He mentioned uh, the tackle. He mentioned that it had anchors and a mast and a lifeboat, right? That's basic stuff. That's true of any boat. Luke never names the ships. He never even indicated the size of that previous ship. I had to infer that from the number of men on board, right? So Luke never gives a truly distinguishing characteristic of any of the ships that they've been on except this one. And most ships have something carved in the prow. So why mention the twin gods, the patrons of sailors? I would have been reluctant to include this detail. Why bother? And in fact, it almost is counterproductive, it seems, because it almost, at a glance, gives the impression that Luke is giving credit to Castor and Pollux for the safe voyage. Because you will note that this is the only leg of this trip that has been calm and uneventful. So, when all hell breaks loose on the open seas, our God gets credit. But when the sea is calm and placid, Luke mentions Castor and Pollux. Am I the only one who finds that weird? The twin gods. George and I sometimes watch Lawrence Welk on Saturday nights, which, with apologies to my mom and my late grandmother, that is a terrible show, but her, great, George's favorite thing is the, the twins that, that Lawrence calls them. You know, they're, they're these two funny-looking short guys who sing sometimes in duets and sometimes wearing, like, lime green suits and the things that were, like, you know, acceptable in the 70s. Georgia says they're the hottest ticket on the show, you know. If they come on, I yell down the hall to let her know, the twins are on, hon, you know. So twins can be interesting or at least amusing, but we don't take them seriously, and we certainly don't really consider them a a good omen. But the people of Paul's day were different. The, The twins for them were a real thing. Three months before, the sailors had been so desperate on the previous ship, and they were so broken that they turned to Paul's God instead of the twins, right? They threw themselves on the mercy of Jesus, but as soon as they saw land within reach, some of the soldiers decided, well, we don't necessarily need Jesus anymore, and maybe we could trust their luck or the twin gods. So... We know, we've seen established, how fickle these men are. We've seen how the sailors and the soldiers and the people of Malta are very fickle. They're easily confused. They're easily led astray. So knowing that, why does Luke draw our attention to the pagan twin gods? It just seems like a distraction. And I think we don't notice it right away because most of us don't study Greek mythology, right? But Luke's readers would have noticed this immediately. So what's he trying to show us? Well, on one hand, he could just be pointing out it's okay to travel with pagans. He could be making the point that it's easy to follow these gods when seas are calm. You know, if if Castor and Pollux symbolize gentle passage, whereas our God tends to tear the seas up and to test us and teach us to turn to him, our God is not necessarily the God of easy passages and comfortable pleasure cruises. But I had another thought. This whole section began with the miracle of Paul and the snake. And we picked up this week, right after the Maltese people had declared Paul a god. 
Now, we know that's ridiculous, and Paul would never have left them in ignorance about it, and I'm sure that Paul had sufficient time over the course of three months to correct these heresies. And I'm quite certain that he corrected the record before he left, and the gospel was, I'm sure, made clear. But Luke does not record that part. And I think Luke is making a rhetorical point by leaving that part out. It's a literary device to prove a point. Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is portraying this entire event as a face-off between gods. Paul, who's not really a god at all, and Castor and Pollux, who are also not really gods at all. And who comes out on top? I think the answer to that question can be seen in the fact that Castor and Pollux are carrying Paul to Rome. Who's in the dominant position? Who's serving who? Paul's riding Castor and Pollux like a boss. In a symbolic sense, these gods have become Paul's servants. I think that's the only way to make sense of the mention. Paul is repeatedly being mistaken for various pagan gods, but this passage is insinuating that he is, in fact, above them. This trip is uneventful because Castor and Pollux are obeying him in Jesus' name. Paul outranks the gods, and so they are made to serve him, all because of the power of Christ in Paul. Paul walks among the gods with a healthy dose of swagger and maybe even humor, and don't think that his fellow travelers didn't notice. The point is not that Paul is really a god or that Castor and Pollux are real in the traditional sense, any more than the echidna was really a sea monster. The point is that Paul doesn't take any crap from them. It kind of reminds me of what Captain America says in the Avengers movie when he first sees Thor and Black Widow says, oh, he's like one of the gods, and Captain America says, there's only one god, man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. (laughs) Paul is very comfortable in his faith, so comfortable that the pagan symbols don't worry him. He is like the Tom Bombadil of Malta. The point is that Paul is not superstitious. He does not worship or fear the pagan idols. He doesn't worship the snake. He doesn't fear the twin gods. He doesn't show deference or respect to any of it. He can burn them or he can use them as he sees fit. Why? Because whatever power they have, they don't have it over him. This is what victory over superstition looks like. It looks like a healthy contempt for the idols of this world. He doesn't freak out and he doesn't run. He acts like Castor and Pollux are here to serve me because they are. In Christ, Paul has more power in his hands than any of the gods of this world. And in Christ, that same power resides in you and it resides in me. The Greeks had a god and goddess for everything imaginable. Sun, moon, stars the sea, the animals, the elements, emotions, whatever. If they were still around, they'd still be multiplying. And Paul doesn't even deny that these earthly powers aren't real. In his letters, he calls them the powers of this dark world. I think they are real, in a sense. But if this story is any indication, we don't need to fear them. Because the servant of Christ has more power than the gods of this world. We don't worship them and we don't fear them because in Christ we outrank them. So let's act like it. Let's pray.
Our gracious God and Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that none of its words are, are a mistake, Lord, that you, you put these things in here intentionally to point to different things, Lord. And we thank you that while we are surrounded, Lord, not just with the, the, the idols of this age, Lord, they're, they're ones, Lord, they multiply faster than we can even think. We don't make statues of them and, and, and put them in, in a rotunda somewhere just to go and, and worship them and burn incense, Lord, but there are certainly idols all around us, Lord, that the world serves, Lord, and they, they really are uh, spiritual powers at work here, Lord, not all of whom are in our favor. But, Lord, we thank you that because your Son resides in us by faith, Lord, we really do outrank the lowercase gods of this world. Lord, may that give us confidence this week and going forward and as we serve you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.